morning, everyone. Thank you for uh, sticking with us. As Alina said, I'm Dan Hamilton. I'm a professor at SAIS, and uh, we're very pleased to be co-hosting this event with the Atlantic Council and other uh, partners. Uh, the topic now is uh, sanctions, uh, their importance, their future, uh, their effectiveness. Um, I think uh, Jack Lew, our Treasury Secretary, had a quote which I think sort of puts this in context. He said, economic sanctions have become a powerful force in service of clear and coordinated foreign policy objectives, smart power for situations where diplomacy alone is insufficient, but military force is not the right response. So I think we see, not only vis-a-vis -vis Russia, but in other contexts, the US has been using sanctions um, to accomplish a variety of goals. Uh, we see our European allies and others engaged in similar activities. We'd like to explore, uh, especially after our election, the possible evolution of those sanctions. Uh, what are these sanctions, in fact? Uh, and are there possibilities for others, how effective they are? So we have a great panel here. Uh, you have everyone's bios, but just uh, briefly, just to give you a quick sum up. So David uh, Kramer here is the, uh, at the McCain Institute, the Senior Director for Human Rights and Democracy, uh, former president of Freedom House, <laughs> former Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Relations with Russia uh, and much of Eastern Europe. Um, we have uh, Emma Ashford here, who is a research fellow at the Cato Institute, uh, who has uh, expertise in international security and, and politics of energy issues. Uh, she, her research is examining, in fact, the extent to which international sanctions uh, imposed on Russia have been effective. Uh, and their effect on U.S. and European economies and businesses. Um, we have uh, Elizabeth Rosenberg, who is a senior fellow and director of the Energy, Economics, and Security Program at the Center for New American Security. Um, she is publishing a lot right now uh, on uh, national and foreign policy security implications of energy market shifts, but also uh, the use of sanctions, economic statecraft, She's formerly uh, was uh, in the uh, U.S. Treasury Department as a special advisor, in fact, to the assistant charity working on terrorist financing against it, uh, and uh, the undersecretary for terrorism and financial intelligence. And then we have uh, Sergei Alexashenko, who is a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institute right now, but former deputy finance minister of the Russian Federation, former deputy um, um, chairman of the Central Bank of Russia, and former chairman of Merrill Lynch, Russia. So you see a great uh, panel, great expertise, different views, and so we'll start uh, this way. I think to give everyone a lay of the land, David, if I could ask you maybe just to start us off, and what are the sanctions that are in place right now vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia, just to give us an orientation point. There are a number of them. It's very complicated, I think, for people to always keep track of everything we're trying to do. Could you just give us sort of an opening uh, outline of what we're talking about? Sure. Dan, thanks very much, and thanks to the sponsors and terrific audience here. Uh, it's great to be here. Let me talk about four sets of sanctions, two of which exist, two of which have been talked about. The first is the Sergei Magnitsky Rule of Law and Accountability Act, the Magnitsky-related sanctions that the U.S. Congress passed by a huge bipartisan majority in 2012. The president signed in December of that year 
to go after Russian officials involved in gross human rights abuses, and that has been in place. It's the, only the United States is the country that has passed such legislation. Despite efforts to get Europeans, Canadians, and others on board with it, no one else has passed similar legislation. In 2014, the second set of sanctions were imposed, and they break down into two sets. One related to the illegal annexation and occupation of Crimea by Russian forces in early 2014, sanctions connected to those, and then additional sanctions for Russia's ongoing invasion and aggression against Ukraine in the eastern part of the country in what's called Donbass. Uh, and those sanctions have been passed not only by the United States, but the European Union getting all 28 members on board with them, as well as Canada, Australia, other, other democratic countries, Japan even, uh, on board with them. So those are the sanctions that have been passed and are in effect against uh, Russian officials, Russian entities, uh, and, and the Magnitsky ones are targeted against individuals. The Ukraine-related ones go after both individuals and entities, as well as prospects for development and energy, as well as limiting finance opportunities. There are two other sanctions that have been talked about, but nothing has been done in, in regard to those. Those are in connection with Russia's uh, military aggression and attacks in Syria, particularly Aleppo, where U.S. and other officials have described Russian actions as constituting war crimes. The European Union had talked about those a few weeks ago, but was not able to get consensus to pass such uh, sanctions on Russia. Uh, the fourth set of sanctions, it's only been talked about, nothing's been done, uh, are sanctions related to the hacking by Russian security services into uh, U.S. computer systems. Uh, and as I say, nothing's been done there. Neither the Europeans uh, nor any other country has talked about sanctions in relation to Russian hacking and interference in, in uh, politics and elections. Thank you, Dave. So Liz, let me just take that further. So that's, that gives us a sense of things. Uh, you've been writing, you were in the Treasury Department, had to be involved in these uh, kinds of activities. You've been writing about what you call next generation sanctions. Uh, so is this sanctions regime not enough? Should we be thinking about additional uh, activities? How do you assess the effectiveness of what's been done so far? Well, thank you for the question, and uh, let me offer my thanks as well for uh, the opportunity to be here with all of you speaking about this topic today. So next sanctions, um, perhaps I'll just restrict my <laughs> comments to next generation of uh, sanctions related to Russia instead of a, a broader approach, which is certainly what I've taken on in writing. But I think the, this is really the topic at hand. And we have a set of sanctions, uh, as was just described uh, very ably, that are on the books now that deal with concerns about uh, activity in Ukraine, Crimea, um, destabilization, uh, 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 peace and security, misappropriation of state assets. That, that's the nature of those sanctions, as well as a, a trade embargo with uh, Crimea. But the topic that I'm sure is a main theme for today, and certainly in public media, is about how to deal with Russia's actions in Syria, and Aleppo in particular. And I will set aside for the moment uh, hacking issues. Now, this is particularly contentious because there's disagreement about whether or not that should be, sanctions should be the tool with which to address that issue. And certainly, any amount of sanctions, however punishing and hurtful, uh, imposed theoretically in the near future, they won't stop what is going on, the, the damage and destruction and devastation in Aleppo. So 
uh, it may not be the best tool <coughs> or the only tool to address that situation. But nevertheless, I think it is, this is a train moving forward uh, and there will certainly be some sanctions response to concerns about Russian activity in Syria. There are packages prepared, ready to go in the United States and certainly uh, in the EU too that will relate to human rights abuse in Syria, Russia's involvement in human rights abuse, also the provision or uh, what can be called material support uh, to, um, uh, of weapons and other material to support the violence and aggression going on in Syria. And while there has been disagreement, particularly uh, publicly voiced in the EU about uh, restraining the EU from moving forward with those sanctions, I think it's inevitable that they will come forward and there are existing authorities with which to do that, both in the EU and in the US. There's no new need for a new executive order or new legislation, though indeed there's plenty of discussion about that and I think there's a high likelihood that that, depending on the political situation, the humanitarian situation, that that is indeed likely as well. So there's a possibility of extending from the original uh, disapproval of Russian actions in Europe now to uh, consider Syria, but it's a complicated issue. Do you have a sense of how this might evolve under a new uh, administration? <laughs> Which one? <laughs> Which is the question. Take right. your pick. Um, well, uh, so, if only we could, yeah, so um, uh, assuming there would be a Clinton, uh, let's take for starters, uh, a Clinton administration, um, she's offered some uh, tough rhetoric when it comes to Russia, and I think there's a strong likelihood that there would be a response with sanctions uh, and other measures to Russian activity in Syria. I'm speaking just about Syria here, and we can and should also speak about uh, Ukraine. I, I don't think that there's a likelihood that there will be additional sanctions uh, in that context under those multiple authorities um, in the near offing, uh, but certainly in response to Syria. And many people I think in her camp and in the United States feel very frustrated with the diplomacy, the US diplomacy as it is currently, uh, and it is mostly diplomacy rather than additional sanctions or other measures when it comes to Russian involvement in Syria. So I think we could expect to see a sanctions response with other, paired with other tools. If there is a Trump administration, uh, we have less to go on by way of uh, prepared public remarks, except that there's an indication that there could be an interest in exploring rollback of what are now Ukraine sanctions, which may be an indication that there is not an embrace of a tougher stance uh, with regard to sanctions for Syria. But this is a tricky set of hypotheticals. Hard to know, that's why we're yeah. here. Uh, uh, I'm going to turn to Sergei at the end, because I think uh, in the end, uh, your assessment of how this affects Russia is quite important. But Emma, you've been critical uh, of all of this sanctions uh, and stuff. And uh, I just wonder, when you hear all of this going on, even talking about further sanctions, more, next generation, how do you, uh, how do you uh, reflect on that? Well, I really like the quote that you started with, actually, where the Treasury Secretary said, sanctions are, a, are one of our most useful foreign policy or political tools. Um, and that's what we tend to conceive of sanctions as. We think of them as they're a political tool that helps us to increase our leverage against other states. Maybe it brings them to the negotiating table, like Iran with a nuclear deal. Maybe it forces them to reconsider their actions. And that's clearly the goal in the Russian case. But what we've, what we've seen uh, with the sanctions in, on Russia, and, and there are a lot of moving parts, 
several people have noted already, but we've seen perhaps minimal economic effects um, and almost no political effects. The sanctions haven't been enough. The early sanctions weren't enough to stop Putin moving from Crimea into agitation in eastern Ukraine. Later sanctions um, may have been enough to make him start the Minsk process, but it's not even remotely been enough to convince him to finish or actually conclude the Minsk process. And so when we're talking about the future of sanctions, we're talking about more um, sanctioning more individuals or more entities with relation to Syria. It seems like those sanctions will be largely symbolic. Uh, maybe we will send a message that we, we very much disapprove of what Russia is doing in Syria, but it's really doubtful that they will have the political effects we want, that they're actually going to change any Russian policy uh, or the way they're implementing that policy. Well, you know, this brings up this issue, which is a long-standing debate about effectiveness of sanctions. How do we measure whether sanctions are effective? I mean, you're saying it doesn't achieve our political goal. Uh, David, I wonder, you know, are there other reasons why one would impose sanctions besides trying to change the behavior of the regime? Do you think that those are things that should be taken into account? Well, sanctions are, should be part of a, a whole, I hate the phrase, toolkit uh, for policymakers. Um, and sanctions, in many cases, are an alternative to use of military force. Um, I wish the president had agreed to provide lethal military assistance to Ukraine. I think that would have uh, enhanced the impact of sanctions on Russia by beefing up Ukraine's ability to defend itself. But to Emma's point, I think that the I would argue the sanctions have kept Putin from going further into Ukraine than he has. The Ukrainians also deserve credit for stopping the Russians where they are. Um, but where we have misplayed sanctions is we have to let the target of sanctions know he's going to get hit with more sanctions if he doesn't change his behavior. And the conversation in the West has failed to do that. Instead, the conversation is, will the Europeans renew sanctions every six months? That's the wrong conversation to have. They should get rid of the six-month timetable. They should lengthen them to at least a year. And we should be talking about not maintaining existing sanctions, but what additional sanctions we will impose on the Putin regime for its failure to abide by the Minsk ceasefire agreement, which I'm not a big fan of, um, or uh, if it continues its aggression in Syria. So we're having the wrong conversation, I think, about the kinds of sanctions and the way forward with sanctions. Um, and if we had that conversation and then followed through on it, I think we'd see a different outcome. I think you also raised the distinction between the way our European colleagues uh, come to decisions on sanctions, how they impose them, what they're about, and the way the United States does it. We'll come back to that. But I do want to come to Sergei now. So you've heard a bit about this. Uh, mm -hmm. I know you've been looking at this very closely. Um, do you think the sanctions have had an impact in Russia in any particular way? Is there a way that you can tell that? Uh, how, what would be the Russian view of, of this whole regime? Okay, it will not Russian view. I think a Russian, question, yeah. a Russian view okay. from a Russian. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I <laughs> uh, thank you, uh, organizers of the conference, and thanks the audience for coming here. Uh, I'm rather skeptical about the effectiveness of sanctions. Definitely, there are a couple of issues where sanctions were effective. First, it's okay, political information. It's it's a great message from the United States, from the West, from the European Union to Russia. We do not accept your policy. It's definitely clear message, and it's effective. It's a stated message and is in place for more than two and a half years. Second, it is political unity of the West. So it's, it's really important. And Putin recognized that despite all his efforts, he cannot break this wall. So he is against the wall, and there is no, at least up to now, any one particular weak element he can destroy it. But that's it. 
That's it. Because if we take, uh, I, I disagree, I strongly disagree with David and uh, some other uh, experts who say the uh, Western sanctions have stopped Putin from further aggression into Ukraine. They do not. They did not. Because the most, the, the last big wave of sanctions was August, uh, September 2014. That was where financial sanctions were introduced, technological sanctions. But after that, there was a great military operation in Debaltseva. That before, Minsk, before and while Minsk II was signed, Russian, Russian troops have occupied another 500 square kilometers. And they have reached their target. I, I really skeptical, why should Putin build a so-called land bridge to Crimea? It will be a territory five times bigger, five, six times bigger than current Donbass. Donbass, occupied Donbass, is a territory of the country like Israel. It's a huge territory. And you want Putin to occupy another six Israels. How huge should the occupation army to keep this corridor? It's Putin has no such an army. And he has, uh, the, the idea of this land bridge is to have communication with Crimea. Okay, he's building Crimea bridge. And moreover, his crony Rottenberg is building and earning some money. In two years, this, this bridge will be built, and that's it. That logistic problem will be solved. So Putin does not need any more space of Ukrainian territory, because currently he has Lugansk, he has Donetsk, and the Balsava is connection point. Logistically, it's more than enough. So I do not believe sanctions stop Putin for, from further aggression. Moreover, uh, sanctions did not stop aggression at all, because Russia is changing the rule of the managing the situation. They have replaced uh, say so-called military man with more uh, sophisticated person in staff of uh, both uh, so-called Rep uh, People's Republic, and they build regular army. So they, Russia deploys seven thousand of their uh, personnel there, and they build more or less regular army that, for different sources, count thirty to thirty-five thousand troops, uh, uh, people. So that's that's what we're going to see in Russia on economic front. On economic front. Uh, there was a period in the end of 2014, beginning of 2015, when it seems sanctions did matter because Russian ruble was collapsed, inflation was spiking. But that was, in my view, the perfect storm. Because in one particular period, there was an effect of sanctions. There was an effect of declining oil price. There was a calendar effect because by that particular time, uh, the schedule of the repayment of foreign debt by Russian banks and companies was at the peak. By that time, uh, Russian, Russia as a country, as an economy, should repay 10% of GDP per quarter in two quarters, in two consecutive quarters. It's a tremendous amount for any country. And definitely, this impacted um, uh, the uh, financial situation. But afterwards, the pressure of sanctions has been reduced. Currently, Russia is repay uh, Just to understand the numbers, uh, uh, the, ne the net repayment of foreign debt by Russian corpor corporations and banks is something like eight to ten billion dollars per quarter. While because of the decline in oil prices, Russian economy loses fifty to fifty-five billion dollars per quarter compared to 2013. That's a magnitude. That's the effect what hits Russian economy more, oil price or sanctions. Moreover, if you look on the statistics for the third quarter, many Russian banks and companies have been able to raise capital in the West, not to those who are under sanctions. Because legally there was, I do not remember, maybe no more than 10 uh, banks uh, and 10 companies are banned to, to enter financial markets. While the, before the middle of this year, no one was able to raise money in the West, or virtually no one. Even the Russian Federation itself, trying uh, to attempt the markets uh, in uh, April, was not able to raise funds. 
In this, in, in this autumn, Russian Federation was able to borrow. At least a dozen <coughs> of Russian banks and companies have been able to, to raise financing. So sanctions, they do not work. Uh, oil production in Russia is uh, growing. So where, the, where is the effect of sanctions? I really do not see it. We, of course, statistically, there are some experts who say, okay, the effect of sanctions, like for IMF, for example, it may be one or two percentage points a year. But if, we have, if, if you have together the decline in oil price, if you have the decline in investment, bad investment climate in Russia, if you have sanctions, and if you have bad mood of the Russian economy and weak uh, domestic demand, I think the effect of sanctions is the most significant in all of this. Can I offer sure, a, go ahead. a perspective on this? So I think uh, actually one could take much of what you've just said and argue the case for sanctions effectiveness in a different framework. And, and I say this as someone who worked on technical sanctions implementation issues from, from within the Treasury Department. The, if you take as your parameters the idea that it, it was never the intent of these sanctions to collapse the Russian economy, um, then, and furthermore, as a, a parameter that it's not possible for the sanctions to, um, or I, I would say it, they must be updated constantly if they are, in any case, in any sanctions case, if they are to be effective because there will naturally be ways for capital to flow in a different path or for a different financer to, uh, to come forward. And furthermore, uh, sanctions are most effective when they happen to, um, by design, coincide with other difficult economic factors or pressure points. So this perfect storm you're describing, in fact, that's when sanctions can be most effective, is when they try and, if you will, capitalize on a perfect storm. And so um, oil prices, a few people, I think, uh, who look at from the financial services or energy world would dispute the fact that Oil, the oil price collapse was much more, uh, much more powerful for the Russian economy as a factor than the sanctions. Um, but for a careful or technical execution of sanctions, that is the point, you know, to try and uh, piggyback on another difficult factor, like, for example, trying to um, compel the spending down of domestic reserves, that kind of thing. So piggybacking on a, uh, the need for Russia to service quite a lot of debt, which compelled then this repayment of quite a lot of um, sovereign debt. Um, Right, I think those are the key points I want to make there. Well, Sergey, let me ask, please, if you want to respond. But let me, let me uh, you know, most uh, analysis that I know, looking at the Russian economy, thinking about long-term projections, mm -hmm. it's rather pessimistic. Mm -hmm. uh, failure to diversify the economy, reliance still on uh, energy as sort of its main uh, backbone of the economy, um, and that the pressures will start to accumulate. That's, I would say, conventional wisdom, mm -hmm. if you will. I, what I'm hearing you say is that might not be true. So I think before we get back to the, into the sanctions itself, are you saying that you think the Russian economy is doing better and it probably is coming out of this storm and uh, you know it's, it's headed in a different direction? Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, just a short reaction to Liz. Liz, <coughs> I fully agree with what you said about the perfect timing when it was the second half of 2014. The design of sanctions by that time was good. And uh, you are right that it was a combination and it seems I was here, it was somewhere beginning of 2015 when I said the effect of sanctions was big at that particular time. But if you read the statements of President Obama and some other political figures in the US, they say we will increase costs of, of Russian aggressive policy. There is no increase in costs, there is a decrease of costs. If you compare the situation of today to the end of 2014, it is 
decrease, of course. So there is no sense, okay, we discussed the effectiveness in two and a half years' time. Yeah, and this effectiveness is declining. It's, I, I never said it's zero, but it's definitely declining, and costs for the Russian economy, they are declining. I, I have, not only me, not only me, uh, I would say, as you read, the uh, bulk of experts have a very pessimistic mood on Russian economy. Even Russian Ministry of Economics, just making a long-term forecast until 2035, they do not envisage more than 1.7% growth annually. And that for the developing economy like Russia, it's very low if we assume that the global economy will grow something like 3% a year. That means that the share of Russian, Russian economy in the world will shrink. Uh, but uh, is, is Russian economy doing better today than a year ago? Yes. Yes, because a year ago, last year, the, uh, in 2015, the decline of the economy was 3.7%. This year, the decline will be 0.6-0.7%. Next year, it may be plus 0.3%. Statistically, it's better. But uh, uh, the private consumption felt by 15% in all this time. And if you look on historical cases, uh, the, economic, the, economy, the economy of any country is such an animal that is designed to expand. The design to grow. And that's why it, there are very rare cases in the global history, in the, at least in the recent uh, 40, 50 years when we have reliable statistics, when any economy may go down for more than two, three, two, two and a half years. So if there is no war, if there is no some specific disaster, economy should start to grow. So definitely Russian economy is not declining, it's, it's in stagnation, and it's better than to be in decline, but there is no good forecast even on the official side. So those who are arguing, I th many Russian officials argue basically sanctions are useless, have no effect, uh, and yet Russia is also imposing, uh, you could say imposing sanctions on, on Western uh, companies and uh, neighboring countries, agricultural imports, stopping things. There's a whole back and forth with Ukraine. Uh, and so how do you square that circle? Uh, if they're not that effective, why, what's the motivation for Russian officials to be doing essentially a similar type of activity? Uh, uh, sanctions, Putin feels sanctions. Putin feels uh, pressure of sanctions, definitely, and that's why his nervous reaction uh, three weeks ago when he uh, submitted the draft legislation on plutonium deal that uh, we will negotiate with the US only if you remove sanctions and pay us back all costs associated with the sanctions. So he does feel that it's painful. It's first. Second, uh, the bulk of Russian people believe that uh, Russian counter-sanctions like ban on import of European and American, New Zealand, Canadian food were imposed by the West. So it's a political tool, it's a propaganda tool, it's not an economic because neither European countries feel this, except of Baltics and Finland, they really are suffer from Russian counter-sanctions. And Rus Russian population is suffering because of inflation. I just, before the beginning of this meeting, uh, this session, read the latest statistical data of Rostat. Inflation in October is twice as much as it was in September due to inflation in products, products that are under sanction. So Russian people are paying sanctions, but that's not the price that Putin wants. Sanctions of economic sanctions of Russia against Ukraine are very effective because uh, Russia is imposing new and new sanctions, not officially, not officially, but those uh, different uh, sanitary norms, uh, like ban on transit of Ukrainian goods from Ukraine to Central Asia. They, are very, they hurt significantly the Ukrainian economy, and it's statistically measurable. So I would say it's a mixture. 
And so, and you mentioned that the reason for doing these are not just economic, although there's some impact, but symbolic, political tool, comes back to the points we'd made before, Emma saying these are only symbolic. Uh, but, you know, isn't, isn't in the toolkit, Emma, that you mentioned, isn't symbolism, uh, political unity, solidarity, getting coalitions behind you, isn't that another reason to do sanctions, regardless of their economic impact? I think the, the symbolism and the sort of signaling functions of sanctions can be important. But in regards to the Russia sanctions and what we're talking about right now, I would make sort of two points. One that, that Sergei kind of alluded to, which is, do sanctions sometimes have counterproductive political impacts? And the fact that the majority of the Russian population thinks that we effectively cut off their food supply, they think that the inflation that they're seeing in food prices is caused by us, even though it was their own government that did it, propaganda is very effective. Um, that's a very negative uh, political, counterproductive political impact that we're seeing. It has probably actually drawn the Russian people more closely behind Putin politically rather than turning them sort of against his policies in Ukraine. Um, and then the second point I would make is that you're right that this sort of coalition of European states and the U.S. coming together to sanction Russia, it did look good. It provided a, a wonderful political condemnation of Putin's actions in Crimea and in Ukraine. The problem is, in the two years since then, what we have seen is that coalition start to fray at the edges. Every six months when the European Union uh, comes back up to consider renewing the sanctions. And for those who don't know, US sanctions, when they're put on pretty much last indefinitely, the European Union has to vote every six months, and that vote has to be unanimous to reimpose the sanctions. So every time this debate happens, and every time you see European countries, particularly some of those that are losing out from the, the agricultural sanctions and are seeing their industries suffer, start to question the sanctions regime, I'd say, well, again, that's another sort of counterproductive political impact. It suggests that there isn't much European unity on the Ukraine question. Uh, David, you mentioned the differences also with Europe. and Let's come back to that point, because the way the Europeans, as Emma just said, come to their sanctions conclusions is different in the United States. Um, but you had mentioned opening that uh, there's actually remarkable unity among uh, uh, the EU countries, and that given Russian activities in Syria, although that wasn't the original motivation for the EU sanctions, that sort of has given them a, back, a bit more backbone on this. I just wonder, do you share Emma's conclusion that the European unity is fraying on the sanctions, or do you anticipate it will go forward? I think because of Russian actions in Syria, the EU will renew sanctions come the end of the year. Uh, I have more confidence in that prediction than I would have, say, two, three, four months ago. But, but let's not conflate the impact of sanctions with the policy and public diplomacy that go with them. Um, we have done a lousy job of explaining to the Russian people in our own uh, constituencies that the sanctions that have had the biggest impact on average Russians have been the ones that Putin has imposed himself. Go back to the reaction of the Magnitsky legislation in 2012. What does Putin do? He bans the adoption of Russian orphans by American citizens. He goes after the most vulnerable, innocent segment of his own population and punishes them. Um, then in, in 2014, the, the sanctions banning the import of food and agricultural products from countries that have sanctioned Russia. That, as Sergei has mentioned, has driven up the price of food 
faster than the overall rate of inflation. To average Russians, that has an impact. We have not done a good job of explaining to Russians and others that the sanctions that have hurt you more than any others have been the ones that your own leader has imposed. The, the import substitution has not really worked, at least in terms of pricing when it comes to Russia. So we have to be careful about uh, how we describe and explain and justify the sanctions that we have done, as well as explain much more clearly the impact of the sanctions that Putin himself has put in place. Let me ask you, when you did your overview at the beginning, you talked about different kinds of sanctions. Some are Ukraine related to intervention in Donbass and so on, but there is a set of sanctions about Crimea. Um, and some of those are targeted, again, more individual. Now, Russia's just proceeding. Sergei said they're building bridge, they're doing things, there are Western companies involved in these activities. Uh, uh, have we forgotten uh, Crimea? Have we, uh, you know, is there something we should be doing more about that part of the sanctions regime uh, as this just continues? So Sergei says it had no impact. Uh, he, Putin's built, just continuing to annex and build. Uh, what should we do? Well, one of the problems is that the Minsk agreement makes no mention of Crimea. So Crimea, to some extent, has been pushed to the side, which I think is, is, is a mistake. Um, but Crimea sanctions, there, there were uh, some additional sanctions imposed in September from the United States, particularly connected to construction of a bridge that may never really materialize from Russia to Crimea. Um, but for, for the most part, there have been no new sanctions on Crimea. But let's also be clear, there have been no new sanctions on Russia for failure to comply with Minsk. I think that's a, a failure of policy making and decision making, not of sanctions. If we had imposed sanctions on Russia for its failure to live up to a single condition under Minsk, I, I think there would have been more pressure on Putin to have at least done something along those lines. So it, it, it's, I think we have to be careful. It, the problem is not with the sanctions, in my view. The problem is in our failure to ramp up the sanctions as we go along so that Putin understands there will be continuing costs for this kind of aggression and, and behavior, whether it's in Ukraine or in Syria. But you say um, we've sort of forgotten about Crimea in a way and haven't done anything more. Would you think it makes sense to have sort of a Crimean version of the Magnitsky Act, that is target individuals who are contributing to the furthering the annexation and incorporation of Crimea into Russia? That type of thing? I, I would target every <coughs> single member of the Federation Council that voted for the annexation of Crimea. I, th there have been a lot of officials and individuals targeted for what's happened in Crimea, um, but, but it just doesn't get as much attention. Uh, at a certain point, I think you need to look at additional sanctions that could, and I've been told this by someone in the administration, the Russian Central Bank. Look at Gazprom. Gazprom is the entity that actually has cut off gas to Ukraine twice in the height of winter in 2006-2009. If we started going after Mr. Bortnikov, the head of the FSB, remember he came to the United States in April of last year for the Countering Violent Extremism Conference. To me, it's, it's really hard to fathom how we could have the head of the FSB coming to Washington. So we need to widen the, the, the uh, uh, swath of, of officials that are involved, include every member of the Federation Council that voted for the annexation of Crimea, um, and go after businessmen who are thriving. And, and, and to some extent, this is being done. But there are a lot more officials that we could go after. Let me ask you, uh, we like to focus on the presidential election, but we're having congressional elections as well. And uh, David, your sense of the Republican mood on sanctions, particularly in the House, um, 
I, I know you can't speak for everybody, but just give your sense of what, what do you, is there uh, continued support for sanctions on Ukraine going forward? Uh, would that working with a Democratic president be something that would be a high priority or not? Or working with uh, President Trump, how would that play out in terms of Republican uh, politics? Well, just on Magnitsky, it passed by huge bipartisan majorities. This has not become a political football issue. The same with Ukraine-related sanctions, legislation that has been passed, huge bipartisan majorities. Support for lethal assistance to Ukraine, huge bipartisan majorities. This hasn't become an issue where Republicans use it to beat up on the White House. Um, I think that will continue, regardless of, of how the Senate or the House go. Um, I think there is strong support in the Congress for Ukraine, um, and I think the sense in Congress is that to help Ukraine, you need to tighten the pressure on Russia. So there, there's, there's legislation ready to go. There's a, um, a variety of measures. There's a lot of support. This isn't something uh, that this that the current administration has been willing to go to the mat to prevent. In fact, they support um, uh, uh, pressure on Russia. Although I completely agree with your characterization, it hasn't been enough, and the and we don't see a failure of sanctions, but rather a failure of maintenance, which is what has caused the fall off in economic impact you described. So the the legislation that exists, there's a variety of different proposals. There's certainly lots of calls. There's a I think a tiny chance that there could be a lame duck passage of uh, more uh, measures from Congress uh, this year, more likely next year. The challenge, though, is that there are a number of ideas, and I think this is a concern, a real concern, um, that th this idea doesn't just float in the Congress, it's elsewhere. But uh, a contemplation of linking the economic leverage, such as it is, uh, in uh, applied uh, pursuant to the Ukraine-related sanctions with uh, measures to try and pressure Russia over Syria. So linking the two, which I think is uh, a really concerning idea, but it's one that some members of Congress would like to run with, and other people too. And uh, you already see this co-mingling, as um, has been said, the, one of the reasons why it was easier for the EU to roll over, to contemplate rollover of economic sanctions uh, come the turn of the year is because uh, concerns about Syria, if you will, stiffened the spine of uh, those in Europe who would have uh, been more comfortable with exploring alternatives to uh, roll over, uh, kind of roll back. So, I think this, the, the commingling of these two areas has already begun conceptually, and it will be a challenge for policymakers uh, negotiating how to deal with that going forward. I think it would be a tremendous mistake to link them inextricably. It removes the off-ramp, which create, means that there's no longer an incentive for behavior change because there's no clear off-ramp. We get into a version of the Iran problem we have where uh, Iran says, wait a minute, you know, you've removed nuclear uh, sanctions, but there's still so much in place that it's very difficult for other people to do business here. Yeah, can I add one quick yeah. thing? Just, uh, I would also like to see the Congress ban participation in Russian privatization. By definition, if Western entities participate in privatization, they are giving money to the Russian state uh, because it's state-owned enterprises that are being privatized. That frees up money for Putin to go after Ukraine, to go after Syria, do whatever he wants. Uh, I don't think Western firms or, or companies should be involved in privatization in Russia. 
they need the money, uh, as we've seen with Boschneft and, and Rosneft. Uh, Rosneft might be next. That we shouldn't be helping uh, Putin carry out his aggression and military actions. Emma, Emma wanted to just end so I think that the issue that, that what both of you are saying really <coughs> does raise is that sanctions, if they're going to work, they, they, they never work by just imposing sanctions on a country and then that country changes its mind on some policy. If they work, they work as part of a broader strategy that includes things like diplomacy, engagement, trade, um, you know, military pressure. And we saw a lot of those things brought to bear in the Iran deal a couple of years ago, and that's why it was eventually successful. The sanctions were eventually successful. Um, if, you know, as you know, we start linking the sanctions on Ukraine with Syria, then we get to a situation where it's not clear exactly what we're negotiating on. Um, why would we lift the sanctions on, say, if Russia makes progress on Ukraine, would we lift the sanctions if they didn't make progress on Syria? And the whole thing becomes a lot more muddled. So that, that seems like it would be a very bad idea if we actually do want to get something political out of it. Um, but I would also caution on the same note against some of these further sanctions that, that David is suggesting. If we start to sanction basically everybody at the top of the Russian government, we cut down our opportunities for diplomacy and engagement. And that means that we can't eventually find a way out of this mess. But can I just, we, sorry, I'm sorry. I was gonna say, yeah, and if we prevent all American companies from investing or trading with Russia, all American banks from doing business with Russia, we run into the same problem. You end up with economies that are increasingly distinct from one another, sanctions over time become less effective. And again, those opportunities for engagement and actually trying to find diplomatic solutions to problems just go away. But sometimes diplomatic solutions aren't there. I don't think we've suffered from a lack of engagement with Russia on Syria. John Kerry and Sergei Lavrov may as well move in together. Um, it, it, it's not for lack of talking to each other that we don't have a diplomatic solution on Syria. It's the Russians don't even acknowledge that they bombed a humanitarian convoy. Um, on, on Ukraine, they don't acknowledge that they're president in eastern Ukraine. I don't think Chancellor Merkel wants to spend a lot more time with Vladimir Putin than she already has. It isn't lack of engagement. I guess the question for critics of sanctions, Emma, that I would ask is, if not sanctions, then what? More John Kerry, Sergei Lavrov meetings in Geneva? I don't think that's going to solve anything. And if, if we see something is unacceptable, and I hope everyone in this room would agree that Russia's invasion of Ukraine and illegal annexation of Crimea is unacceptable, what are we going to do about it? There have to be some consequences for this kind of egregious behavior. And, and if not sanctions, then what? There was a direct question, then I'll come yeah. to Sergey. Well, so then what you're getting back to is you're basically suggesting that sanctions aren't about leverage and they aren't about coercion. They're about punishing Russia for its bad behavior. And that's an argument I think we can certainly make that they should suffer some consequences. But the question then would be, are these sanctions that we have in place right now the most effective way of doing that? And some of the subsets of sanctions, particularly the ones that impede Russia's military modernization, so the sanctions that prevent things like dual-use technology transfers from the West, that's already already impeded Russia's military modernization a little bit, those might be more effective as part of a long-term strategy to punish Russia for what it's done and prevent it from doing the same thing in other countries than the sort of uh, high-level individual and entity sanctions that we have in place right now. Okay, Sergey. Uh, David, I would like you to remove your proposal on, on uh, privatization because there are some ideas that do not work. Yeah, like, like privatization and the other story is like sanctions on Russian oil sector when you prohibit Russian access to technology on shale and uh, Arctic drill. Okay, with the price of oil of $50, $45 per barrel, it's, it's useless. Okay, you may have the sanctions, but they do not work. 
like a privatization. Well, privatization in Russia is this year is Bashneft and Rosneft. Bashneft was purchased by state-owned company Rosneft, and the stakeholders of, of Rosneft will be purchased as well by the state-owned company Rosneft. So, of course, you may prohibit Americans and Europeans, but they are not going to buy. They are not going to buy any Russian assets. What you would, what you can do, is to impose ban on providing loans to Russian government. Mm -hmm. Just do not allow American and European investors to invest in Russian T bonds, bonds, in Russian Federation bonds. Because in 2015 and in 2016, all, all uh, domestic financing of the budget deficit was financed by foreign investors. It was not financed. Ru Russian investors, they have reduced their uh, holdings of Russian T bonds. But foreign investors have financed Russian budget. The same with uh, euro bonds uh, issued by Russian government. In spring, uh, it was unofficial ban, and no one, uh, European American investors, purchased those bonds. While in, uh, in September, this ban was removed, unofficial ban was removed. 70% of the issue of the Russian Federation euro bonds was purchased by Americans and Europeans. First, make what works. This just ban on providing finance to Russian financing to Russian government. It's much more effective. I, I agree with that, but I mean, Western investors would buy Bashnev or Rosneft if they thought it was a good investment. I don't want to rely on the good consciences of Western investment leaders. I, I want to make them understand it is illegal to participate <laughs> in privatization. The, the, the fact that Rosneft and Bashnev. Uh, Rosneft is taking over Bashnev means that the Kremlin is not getting an infusion of new cash. That, to me, is the main goal here, which is to cut. And I agree with you on, on okay. treasuries and other things. It's not to provide any infusions of new money that would free up uh, the ability of the Kremlin to carry out its military okay. actions. J just 10 seconds. David, uh, I would disrecommend to any foreign investors to purchase any assets that the Russian, the Russian government want to privatize. They're, all from of them are bad assets. From your, from your <laughs> mouth be, to their ears. Not because of sanctions, but because of their quality. From your okay. mouth to their uh, ears. Speaking, uh, speaking of things that are illegal, um, uh, and back to companies and businesses. So uh, there's a lot of Russian money that flows uh, westward as well uh, and finances lots of things in the West. Uh, there are a lot of laws that we have in our books uh, against companies engaging in all sorts of activities. Uh, it's not a Russian example. I was just, though, in a session the other day about Moldova, uh, which has had this huge banking fraud, I think, as people know. And it turns out all of that money was funneled through Latvian banks. So member of NATO, member of the EU, flows. And the city of London is very dependent on all sorts of financial flows. So I'm wondering, what, you know, shouldn't we be not just thinking about sanctions imposed on Russia, but simply upholding our own laws? Uh, and aren't some of our own institutions, companies, enablers of the same type of activities that we're trying to prevent uh, the Kremlin from doing? I think actually what you're talking about is uh, this is the one and the same. So uh, U.S. sanctions uh, uh, apply to U.S. jurisdiction. So U.S. companies, they can't apply. Uh, currently, we're not talking about a set of secondary sanctions. So uh, that both goes to the point of what U.S. companies or European companies for theirs can do uh, in Russia or with Russia. Uh, but it also, of course, can apply. Uh, the authorities are all there for what Russian entities can do in the United States, which is to say a certain, say, bank or company in the United States uh, shall not do business, a certain kind of business. So in the continuum of escalation of sanctions, and I sure hope you're thinking of a whole lot of things uh, before we get to central bank or that kind of, that, that kind of 
uh, incredibly strong sanction. Um, in there, that's all the space where, hypothetically, there would be restrictions on U.S. persons, legal or national persons, doing business or hosting business with Russian entities. And that is obviously an opportunity for the EU as well. You mentioned London as a major source of um, Russian investment. Well, so you make the U.S. case, uh, but much of the case is also about Europe. And I'm just wondering, do we see a potential there of uh, some splits between how the Europeans are approaching these issues, whether they're enforcing their own laws uh, or whether we are? And is that a potential that the ultimate effectiveness of the sanctions regime then is dissipated because of our own internal uh, differences. It's already an issue, and in fact, at the another distinction between the U.S. and the EU sanctions is that in the United States, sanctions are created at a, in a central manner, you know, by the, our federal government, and they are similarly um, enforced and monitored centrally. However, in the EU, policy is created centrally, how, but uh, monitoring and enforcement takes place at the member state level which <laughs> means that it is dependent on the political will and capacity of the member state to carry it forward once it's in practice. And it should be no surprise that the debate about whether or not sanctions are a good idea or should be ruled over is an excellent proxy for what is allowed or uh, you know, uh, people look or officials may look away from within their own jurisdiction. So uh, there's an opportunity, as some people may call it, for regulatory arbitrage, if you will. There are uh, companies interested in circumventing Russian sanctions in Europe who might choose one jurisdiction over another one so as to avoid detection or uh, scrutiny. Right. Okay, we're going to turn to questions and answers. We're going to come to you in a second. One last lightning round here uh, to put you on the spot. First 100 days of a new administration in Congress. What should we do with sanctions regime? What should the United States do? Sergey. Uh, to increase economic costs of Russian aggression in Ukraine. Okay, Liz. Signal immediately to Europe that uh, they should roll over sanctions uh, not in come at the new year, um, not just for six months, but for a longer period of time in order to try and seed the ground for a coordinated transatlantic strategy, which is essential for their effectiveness. David. Uh, sanctions will stay in place and be ramped up, and if necessary, it will be done unilaterally by the United States. I would love to see the Europeans on board with that. It's harder to get agreement among 28 than it is uh, one government. Sometimes, yeah. Uh, Emma. Well, right. <laughs> Make That's a concrete offer to the Russians very early on that we will lift the majority of the sanctions regime be very specific about what it is in exchange for the full completion of the Minsk process. Make it absolutely explicit what that deal would be because there is a lot of dubiety right now and that would hopefully help negotiations. Okay, so as we said, we're gonna to turn to, uh, to the questions and the comments. Uh, please keep your comments brief uh, if you have them instead of a question, keep the question brief. If you can identify yourself uh, briefly. We have microphones, is that right? So here, first here, right here. Hello, good morning, Alex Hall-Hall, new resident at the Atlantic Council. Um, I think the discussion has revealed that sanctions are a very imperfect weapon, um, and they're necessary, but they're not nearly a sufficient response to the challenge we face from Russia. 
In response to Emma's concern that sanctions may be having a counterproductive effect, um, I asked the question, where would we be without any sanctions? What else do we have in our toolkit? And I think the political symbolism of them should not be underestimated. Um, but uh, in terms of the concern about whether they're actually changing Russian behavior, it's hard to prove a negative. We don't know what else Russia might have done were there no sanctions, uh, but equally it hasn't rolled back the concerns that originally precipitated those sanctions. So I want to broaden the debate um, because the discussion appears to revolve around more sanctions or less sanctions or rolling over or rolling back. I would like to ask the panel, what are the other measures that could be taken? One of the things that I think uh, Russia is rather good at, um, a sort of Trump compliment, is that Putin has this ability to throw marbles on the diplomatic floor and have us all scrambling um, as he constantly undertakes actions that take us by surprise and put us on the back foot or broaden the issue. So we thought we had an issue in Crimea and suddenly it's Syria. What could we be doing to change Putin's political calculations, not diplomatic engagement, but a diplomatic setback, and get more engagement with Azerbaijan, more serious efforts to address the um, conflicts that give him leverage over these countries, more aggressive action in NATO, change his calculation, um, banning participation in sporting events, for example, yeah, or the hosting the World Cup. So, uh, so what else can we do that would put him on the back foot, surprise him? Okay. I'm going to collect some questions so that so we give time, panelists time to, uh, to reflect on some of these. Right here. Please. Uh, David Colton from the Ijuara Group. I'd like to take the conversation from macro down to a sectoral, which is the VPK and uh, the general staff. The 2020 plan has not been fulfilled in large measure because even though it's fourth generation weaponry, the missing high tech components they need are Western. We know now the Ministry of Finance has tried to reduce the budget. The costs to circumvent the sanctions are now being buried in the black budget that the Minister of Finance has gone public about the size of it for the first time. My question to you is, when we talk about what's really important to Putin, which is the rearmament plan and the cost of the rearmament plan, not just for the 2020 plan, which is fourth generation weaponry, i.e., the Western equivalents in the 1990s, now they're looking at fifth generation stuff. I'd like to hear the panel talk about the real sectoral costs for the Russian rearmament plan, and, and isn't that, in fact, a huge success for sanctions? Thank you. Okay, yes, right here. Ariel Cohen, the Atlantic Council. Um, actually, a segue to the gentleman's question about the military modernization. Uh, we do not have, um, since the end of the Cold War, the equivalent of COCOM. Uh, COCOM, for our young participants here, was an organization that coordinated um, the um, block on exports of military and dual-use technologies. So whatever the sanctions are trying to accomplish now, there is no 
one address for that. When I brought it up with a senior State Department official, he responded that we do not want to, quote, institutionalize the Cold War, unquote. Regardless of whether you think that there is a Cold War or not, what does the panel think about having an organization that will bring together not just NATO members, but our non-NATO allies, such as Japan, South Korea, Australia, and others, um, that would uh, block uh, and prevent uh, this technology uh, that is necessary for Russian military modernization to move to Russia or to move to third countries like we saw with, with the example of Armenia breaking uh, the Iran sanctions and being a conduit uh, during the Iran sanctions. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, so we have a question. Shouldn't we broaden the discussion, include san uh, sanctions in a broader debate? Shouldn't we narrow the discussion uh, and talk about specific sectors? And should we institutionalize uh, the, the response, uh, uh, whether it's the Cold War or not, to have some more uh, systematic way of organizing ourselves in this. So uh, I'm going to now ask everyone to be brief, including our panelists. Don't feel compelled to answer every question, just what you think uh, you can add something to, uh, and we'll, we'll start. Sergey. Okay, what else could the West do? You have diplomatic solutions, as uh, David said talks between Secretary Kerry and Minister Lavrov, they can go 24-7, but with no results. So there's a definitely limit. Economic sanctions, you may increase or you remove them, and you have military. You have a supply of little weapons to Ukraine. And this, uh, Putin, Putin is a man who thinks about hard power, not soft power. So if you want to resist him, if you want him to learn the lesson, if you want him to understand you, you have to use hard power, not soft power. He, he has education of KGB. There is no about, nothing about soft power there. Uh, on long-term effects, on long-term effects, a very good question, a very good question, and I would say it is very important not only for military, but for whole industry. It is non-measurable in the short run. We cannot measure how, uh, how, how the technological gap uh, is growing between Russia and the West within 20, 2016. But definitely it impacts Russian economy and overall. But mostly it is it is because, not, not because of the West, it's because of Putin's decisions. He decided to build self-sufficient technological economy. He decided to build, to invest huge amount of budgetary reserves uh, in import substitution, import So he spends money to build isolated economy, and that will prevent him to build fifth generation of weapon. So that's it. Yeah. Just two quick responses to the questions. Uh, first, there's been a push with some muscle behind it, uh, some shoulder behind it, uh, to try and help Europe become more energy resilient. I uh, don't love the word energy independent, and there's no possibility that Europe could be uh, unreliant on Russian energy sources. However, there's a tremendous amount that can be done at the level of infrastructure building or market deregulation to try and enhance the energy uh, resiliency of Europe, which would give a few fewer soft cards or economic cards to Russia. And that that is a good idea for many reasons. This is just one of them. Uh, uh, the second one I would suggest is um, uh, to make it harder for, harder than it is now, much harder than it is now, for Russia to acquire uh, nuclear, or, excuse me, <laughs> military technology. That's where I was going with that. Um, 
And uh, some of the restrictions exist at the level of sanctions. They've had an effect. There's much more that can be done, and including at the level of material and equipment that come from uh, uh, non-Russian uh, manufacturers or, or purveyors. So uh, one interesting technical innovation that existed that came about for the US-Russia sanctions is to link uh, the financial and criminal penalties of sanctions with the commerce trade controls on certain kinds of material and equipment, uh, which makes it much more expensive and uh, criminally exposed to violate these sanctions. So you could do a lot more with that. That tool hasn't even been taken out of the toolkit. And furthermore, a massive international push with allies, uh, like-minded like push to try and uh, restrict the provision of technolo military technology, equipment, material uh, to Russia as it's uh, in its military modernization plan and uh, other armament activities. Right. David. Um, first, I 100% agree with Sergey about hard power uh, and providing lethal assistance. I think that was the biggest mistake the president made, and it was the president, because everybody else supported providing lethal assistance from the Congress to his, I think, almost his whole uh, National Security Council and cabinet. Um, my, my additional comment, Alex, would be, and it's not meant to sound partisan, I'm, I'm a Republican, though I brag about that less these days than I used to, um, uh, is that the president himself has failed to show engagement. He has failed to go to Ukraine a single time as president. I think that's a disgrace. For the, for the president of the United States not to have shown the flag, to show solidarity with a country that has been attacked by Russia, um, he hasn't gone to Georgia, uh, we need to show much greater support for Russia's neighbors. We're doing the right thing with the uh, reassurance initiative, sending forces uh, to the Baltic states and to Poland. Um, I support what NATO has been doing. They, there have been steps done. I don't mean to suggest there haven't. But the president himself cannot delegate this either to Chancellor Merkel um, or to Joe Biden. He or she, the next president, has to be personally invested in these issues because, frankly, that's where Putin's going to be watching and listening. Yeah. Emma? At the risk of, of broadening this even further. Um, oh, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> this entire discussion has been based on the premise that we should be pushing back strongly against Russia. And I'm not entirely sure that that's the case. So I think there's a good case to be made for some form of response, whether it's sanctions, whether it's diplomatic, to the crisis in Ukraine. But I also think the question that we're not asking is, what are our actual interests in resolving the Ukraine crisis? What are American interests in Syria? They are far less than some people here have suggested. And so when we talk about whether we should use sanctions, whether we should take other actions, we have to put that on a cost-benefit calculus. We have to say, well, what does it cost us to do this? And I think with some measures, particularly as, as the gentleman there suggested, if we start to institutionalize the sanctions regime, create these structures that really are very reminiscent of the Cold War, we could end up making that very costly for ourselves going forward by creating a new Cold War dynamic. We too rarely also ask ourselves, what are the actual costs of sanctions for American companies? We've had this discussion almost entirely premised on a national security basis, and that's where we should be discussing it. But we haven't talked about the costs for American energy companies, the costs for American banks in implementing these sanctions and abiding by them. And so when we're talking about creating a response to Russia, we need to come up with an approach that balances uh, our actual costs in doing so. So it's not 
more costly than our interests actually are. And so I would argue that some of the, the responses that the panelists have already mentioned, things like um, technology transfer in the military or energy realms, those are relatively costless sanctions that could pay dividends in the long term. But when we start to talk about sort of large scale financial sanctions or indeed sanctions on entities like Gazprom, those would be very costly in the short term and probably not as effective. Can I just say, you know, look, with 10,000 Ukrainians killed by, through Russia's invasion, with half a million Syrians killed um, by Assad and now Russian complicity along with Iran, Iranian complicity, um, with the Budapest Memorandum of 94, which was an incredibly important uh, deal that got Ukraine to denuclearize in exchange for the other signatories respecting Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity, with Ukraine on the front lines, um, if, if Ukrainians don't stop, because they're not asking Americans to fight their battle for them, if Ukrainians don't stop the Russians, then the Russians could well go elsewhere. And if they see us as weak and feckless, they might even go into a NATO ally. And if we don't defend a NATO ally, then NATO is dead. Uh, to me, that underscores our interest. We have an absolute interest in stopping Putin, helping the Ukrainians stop Putin, um, and also stopping what they're doing in Syria. I, here again, I think that the negligence of the president to do anything in Syria is is contributing to, to a catastrophe there, where it has been bad enough before Russia invaded and, and intervened, it is now exponentially worse. Okay, 30 second uh, rebuttal. Yeah, so I, I obviously disagree on the extent of our interests in Ukraine and particularly in Syria, but I, I think that's a debate we can have later. Maybe we should get back to some of the right. questions. Right, so you know, we can easily expand this to the question of how do we just deal with Russia, but that's the topic of the entire conference. There are other complete sessions dedicated to that. I'm trying to keep us on the sanctions topic. Uh, I realize that you can't compartmentalize it too much, but let's try to, uh, with our next round, stick to sort of a, a topic here. We had a question right here. You have to uh, get a microphone and say who you are. Uh, George Trapisky from the Atlantic Council. I'd like to follow up on the, the lady's question there and I think Ariel's um, about uh, different mechanisms. But before we get into the mechanisms, I'd like to raise a question of what are we trying to accomplish with sanctions? Are we playing the role of a parent who's punishing uh, a child for bad behavior? Are we uh, pretending to play the role of a therapist who is engaging in behavior modification and hoping that people will, despite centuries-long habits, will change their behaviors? Or are we trying to deal with a threat that's a threat not just to Ukraine, but a threat really to um, to the West, okay. it's one extreme to the other extreme, and I'd like to hear your views on what it is that we're trying to accomplish with uh, with the sanctions, and what kind of um, goal we hope to achieve. Okay, I'm going to confound my microphone holders by going way to the back. People are patient way in the back, and often don't get to them. So please. Thank you, Conrad Kramer from the Austrian National Daily Newspaper Courier. A little input from Central Europe to this topic. You know, the Austrian... A little, little input. If it's not a question, an input. Okay, just two, uh, two quick remarks. Uh, Austrian oil company OMV is hammering out a deal with Gazprom. The pipelines in the Baltic Sea, German-Russian pipelines are open. Bratislava is becoming the new transport hub for Russian rail. So, isn't there the danger that the U.S. might be waving the red flag while the European economy just goes on 
moving on as normal in their dealings with Russia. Right. Okay. There was another back. Yes. Way back. Way back here. Thank you, David Kadier, Center for Transatlantic Relations at SAIS. Uh, on um, EU ways of doing sanctions, a quick comment leading to a real question. Uh, the comment is, yes, talking about sanctions over six months is potentially counterproductive in terms of unity, but it also demonstrates flexibility because the EU is considering sanctions as a mean to an end. And it's linked to, I think, Mr. Kramer's and Ms. Ashford's debate. It's not just about whether it's, it's a moral posturing or not, but it's when sanctions work. Sanctions work when they're contingent. That's what research shows. When sanctions are non-contingent, when a target has the impression is punished for what it is rather than what it does, it's actually not uh, bringing any uh, results. And with all due respect to my American colleagues, we wouldn't want the EU sanctions to end up like the uh, jackson Vanik Amendment staying for 20 years after the end of the, end of the Soviet Union. To joke apart, my question is that if sanctions are means to an end, the end is clear. We want Russia to stop supporting uh, separatists in the East. We want Russia to stop meddling and creating conflict in Ukraine. How do we do that? What do you think of the proposal, which is sometimes voiced in Europe, about uh, linking partial lifting of the sanctions against explicit partial implementation of Minsk? Is it something which is possible or realistic for you? Okay, come back up here. It's right here. Uh, Vagam Ranian from the Defense and Aerospace Report. The question I have is, what happens to the sanctions regime and any policy we have toward Russia when oil prices start to go back up again, as is trending? I mean, OPEC is already conspiring to raise them with the Iranians, with Russian invitation and everything else. So what happens to our leverage when oil is 100 or $150 a barrel? Okay. Here, Paula. Here, it's the microphone. Right here. Thank you, uh, Paula Stern, the Atlantic Council. Uh, great discussion. Um, there hadn't been any references uh, to Iran, to Turkey, to other uh, countries, um, and the degree to which um, uh, sanctions, as we all know, are most effective when they're multilateral uh, and not just the West. Um, would you comment on that? Linkage, uh, leakage. Yeah, I think to broaden that, it's not just U.S. and Europe. Who else is engaged in this? And uh, what are the uh, difficulties of keeping a coalition together that's broader than the transatlantic coalition? Okay, we had a number of questions, different points, some European perspectives. Uh, let's go back. Let's go the other way, if can, Emma. Sure, yeah. So um, let me address the, the question of, the, of our European colleague in the back. Um, so I, I may have misspoken earlier. I, I completely agree. I actually think the European method of discussing sanctions every six months is a very valuable policy tool. And I think it's what prevents sanctions in Europe from turning into things like the Jackson-Vanik Amendment or indeed the, the Cuban embargo, right, that lasted 50 years and there was no clear political objective for much of that time. Um, so I think that that's uh, a good way to view the process of how do we link uh, sanctions outcomes with actual sanctions. And I think this idea that's recently been proposed that we would uh, link steps in the Minsk process to lifting specific sanctions could be a actually a good way to go about resolving the conflict. Um, so I think concretizing what exactly 
Russia will get in the way of sanctions relief for taking specific steps is probably the only way that we see a political resolution to this. Um, that is exactly what happened in the Iranian case. The JCPOA was very clear about laying out exactly which sanctions would be lifted from the, the nuclear sanctions, the human rights ones, the terrorism-related sanctions on Iran, which sanctions would be lifted, when they would be lifted, and in response to what Iranian actions. That's an approach that I think could work with Russia. All right, David. Um, first of all, Jackson Vanek was incredibly successful. It, it did free up the immigration of Soviet Jews. It stayed too long, for sure. I don't question that. And there were efforts um, by several administrations to actually graduate Russia from Jackson Vanek. It took the Magnitsky Act to enable Russia to get out from under the Jackson Vanek. Because of Russian uh, human rights abuses, the Congress felt that it was right to replace Jackson Vanek with new legislation that would go after Russian human rights abuses. Um, on partial lifting, it won't surprise you, I'm opposed to it, uh, particularly given my position that we should be talking about ramping up sanctions, not easing sanctions for partial implementation of Minsk. As I said earlier, I'm not a fan of Minsk. I think we should do away with Minsk. We should get away from Minsk, not Ukraine. Um, and we should simply tell the Russians, sanctions will stay in place and be ramped up over time unless and until you get out of Ukraine, period. Negotiating with Russia is pointless. When they don't even acknowledge that they're in eastern Ukraine, what exactly are we negotiating about? And they haven't fulfilled a single condition under Minsk. Um, multilateral, uh, there are a number of countries that have joined the EU in the, in the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Japan. Um, Iran, of course, is not going to join. Iran is complicit with Russia, along with Assad and murdering Syrians. Um, Turkey uh, is a complicated relationship. We don't have time to go into that. Um, but, but there are other uh, countries that have. Um, but we also have to recognize there are limits to how many countries will go along with it. Right. Liz. The energy, to the energy question. So the energy question, uh, the energy sanctions, uh, Russia sanctions, are designed to go after what we might characterize as frontier or future um, energy production. They do not cut off, uh, for the most part, um, energy production uh, development uh, now. So when prices... Uh, however, what they do is make it difficult for uh, Russian uh, energy projects to receive financing to raise money in European and U.S. capital markets. So with a rise in energy prices, it may mean that Russian companies can finance more off their balance sheet and have to turn less to uh, the EU and the U.S. So that is a, a clear area where maintenance of sanctions must be addressed if, they are, if the political will is for them to continue to have a lot of pressure. To the point about what's the what's the goal here for sanctions? Is it uh, are they designed to be um, used for signaling, for deterrence and coercion, or are they meant to be a, a method of or strategy for punishment? I think the answer to that is uh, people break on a it's a methodological issue uh, how you come to how you come to view that. I am definitely in the camp that they ought to be. Uh, used for coercion, deterrence, and signaling, which necessarily means that you must make sure that the objectives associated with the sanctions stay updated and that uh, there's a clear off-ramp or a, um, uh, a path for de-escalation. And that requires 
creative thinking. We've seen, we, we have a couple of great examples where that has not occurred. Cuba is, the, is my favorite one where that, has not, that did not occur for a long period of time. And in a dynamic political environment, it is absolutely essential that that occur in this instance. And I have full confidence that that will mean there needs to be um, an adaptation of some sort or an evolution to the Minsk uh, set of requirements uh, in order to keep the objectives uh, current over time. And there's no way to know ahead of time what that will look like. And finally, just on the view from Central Europe, so the OMV project or the partners to Nord Stream 2, yes, it's definitely true that Europe is split on uh, how it wants to engage with Russia on energy issues. Nevertheless, if um, the main transit hubs shift if the countries receiving energy uh, from Russia directly uh, uh, change in the constellation a bit, where does that lead? These, these changes uh, leave out in the cold a variety of um, Russia's near neighbors, uh, including Ukraine and others. Uh, so what should the United States or Europe, indeed Europe's view, be towards uh, how to strengthen, how to use the leverage of their community as a block? And if, you, if Russia succeeds in dividing um, its energy, the European energy consumers into a different constellation, it uh, comes out ahead on that particular um, fight, if you will, uh, and uh, makes things more difficult for European unity uh, and transatlantic unity uh, on energy issues and, and others uh, when uh, dealing with Russia. All right, Sergey. Uh, goal of sanctions, uh, Ukrainian sanctions, is to stop Russian aggression in Ukraine. And in fact, all Minsk agreement is very simple. It may be executed within, I don't know, one week. To look on the last point, it's just uh, giving control of the Russian-Ukrainian border to official Kiev. Okay, just do it, and that's it. All Minsk is implemented. And there is a special decision of the European Union that as soon as Minsk is implemented, sanctions will be removed. Despite after six months, before six months, three and a half days, and the US administration supported this idea. Say, okay, we, we, we share, we joined. We joined the decision of the European Union. So the conditionality, the goal of sanctions is very simple. While I completely agree with David that any negotiating, any contingency state, okay, please implement point number two, bullet, bullet BCD, and we will remove sanctions on Rosneft, and you will implement, uh, I don't know, bullet number five, and we remove sanctions on something else. It's counterproductive. It's open the space for bargaining while it does not solve a problem. The problem is to stop aggression of Russia in Ukraine. That's, that's very simple, and there is no other interpretation, because finally, in, uh, in uh, Ukrainian case, in Donbass, uh, there is no need in process. There is need in the result. And the experience of Iran, Iranian sanctions, demonstrates very well that sanctions work if they are escalating. In case of Iran, sanctions were escalated to a way when uh, reserves of a uh, central bank were frozen, reserves of all Iranian residents were frozen, and in fact, that harmed economy to a great extent. Russia is not, I, I would say, if we weight sanctions on Iran and Russia, Russia is no more than 5% of Iranian sanctions. So there is a great, great way to go, and uh, unless, unless the West indicates its desire to move this uh, way, Putin will not go to the negotiation table. On... Um, a split uh, of the West, I would emphasize that Gazprom is not under European financial sanctions. It is under U.S. 
financial sanctions, and uh, American institutions cannot uh, give financing to Gazprom, while Europeans can. The, uh, Gazprom is not under sanctions. And what is important in alliances, I would say, of course, uh, I do not believe that uh, US can influence China to join uh, Western sanctions, but I believe that West can influence Israel. That from technological point of view, from militarization plan, is much more important than, uh, than, than the alliance with China, with India, or with Namibia. If I could just one point on Gazprom, it's not only that difference, but in fact the EU, the Commission, and uh, Gazprom are probably heading for a settlement on, their, on the EU's own case against Gazprom in terms mm -hmm. of the, the EU's version of antitrust laws, rather than really go after them, there's probably going to be a settlement. So uh, that's but a very it, different it, outcome. No, but it's a normal procedure. It, it's, it's a normal procedure for uh, many uh, antitrust yeah, cases in Europe. Yeah, you say that to a lot of American companies that have been under the EU's antitrust sanctions, and uh, it looks a little different. So there is some potential there for dissidence. Mm -hmm. You know, I think uh, we've had a range of views, lively discussion, very good. Uh, the thing that always comes back to me is despite how you might think about it, how you use sanctions really depends on your own agility. Uh, are you agile as a government to adjust, either as you know, tools, give you off-ramps, give you different things? Can you do it quickly, in real time, or are you does your system lock you into things that make it cumbersome and then not achieve your own goals? So I, may th I think no matter how you think about their effectiveness, if you are not agile as a government or as a coalition, uh, a lot of that uh, sort of dissipates. Anyway, uh, everyone's been good uh, audience, good uh, participants. Hope everyone's happy. We're going to uh, go to the next session, uh, but please first, uh, what's that? 30 minute lunch break, but please first thank our participants. Thank you. Thank you.